So reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is, it, sorry, what is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Thanks, Helen. Morning, all. It's good to see your uh, smiling faces this morning. Oh, yes, never mind. Uh, and I'm guessing, looking around, that there's probably quite a number of us joining us online, so I can't see you, but it's good for you to be able to see me. Because it is good uh, to be up here, because this is a chance for us to explore God's Word together. And that's always a good thing. Uh, allow me to lead us in prayer, and then we'll get into it. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for your word, and we pray that uh, you would help us to hear uh, what you have to say to us through it this morning, through your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you uh, had to read, possibly out loud, through uh, one of Shakespeare's tragedies at school? And when I say tragedies, I'm talking uh, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth... Hamlet, Othello, King Lear. I'm guessing many of you have had to read at least one of them at some point. They are considered classics, after all. Uh, necessary reading for understanding, not just the English language, but something about the human condition. Uh, tragedies are compelling to us, are they not? Uh, we recognise uh, that the stories they tell are tragic because they reflect circumstances in our own lives, uh, the things that we see all the time. 
are sure we don't uh, speak like the Capulets and the Montagues do. But we see that the things that happen in these stories are wrong. Uh, And we wish, oh, if only this person had been less selfish, or if that person had just waited a bit longer, everything would have turned out okay. If only. Because we know what that would feel like. We have a sense for what it's like to experience loss and grief and to be affected by selfishness, whether someone's, someone else's or our own, or for disaster to befall people we know for seemingly no reason or for seemingly very good reason. Tragedies speak to us all. So much so that we actually now borrow that word to describe real life situations, don't we? Tragedy is originally an ancient Greek word. You know what it means? It means goat song. Kind of suggests it's about a performance originally rather than sad circumstances. A tragos is a he goat. So think about that the next time you describe something as tragic. Maybe you're saying it's goatish. Ancient definitions aside, though, it's only natural for us to describe real-life situations as tragedies, right? Because we see them all the time. And the stakes are so much higher in real life because they're real. Real death, real suffering, real pain, real loss. They're a real part of our real lives. And again, we wish it wasn't so. How good would our lives be without these things, without any tragedy? Well, allow me to suggest that what we've just read this morning is the greatest and worst tragedy of all time. It is the greatest tragedy as far as being a story goes, but it's the worst tragedy because it's 100% real. All the way through to the time of Jesus and the Apostles, the writers of the Bible treat this event as a grounded historical reality, even if the event seemed to us maybe far-fetched. Like any great tragedy, it has protagonists making the wrong choice and bringing about calamity. And as the worst tragedy ever, the consequences of that choice are still being felt in our lives to this day. This is a real event where humans first chose to rebel against God and the magnitude of what we have lost can't be overstated. But ultimately, it's the greatest tragedy of all time because even there in the disaster, it is meant to give us real hope. Earlier this year, we had uh, a series on Genesis chapters 1 and 2, all about uh, creation and how good God's creation uh, was and has been since the beginning. And if you weren't around for that, I thoroughly recommend uh, going to our website, following the links to have a listen uh, to those sermons. But we saw how the eternal God created the universe, including uh, this earth and everything in it, And how when he finished his work of creation, he looked at it and saw that it was very good. And to the humans in creation, Adam and Eve, he gave purpose to work and maintain the garden, to multiply, and to be in relationship with him, their creator. They would live forever with their God in a place that was flawless. And then, tragedy. Tragedy. 
God had only given Adam and Eve one do not command. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The only thing they cannot do is eat from this one tree, which God calls the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only thing that could ruin, that could corrupt, that could make rotten the very good, perfect creation is if they eat from this one tree. So what do they do? Well, sure enough, we see in chapter 3 that they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the consequences are disastrous. They destroy the relationship that humans have with God. And God, being a just God, has to mete out justice for what they have done. Uh, Through these curses he gives. We didn't read uh, the ones he gives to them, but uh, we see in those that Adam and Eve and their descendants uh, are cursed to pain and suffering and toil and death. And those curses are just, but they're also merciful. They're just because Adam and Eve did the one thing they were commanded not to do and were warned about the consequences of, but they did anyway because they wanted to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. That is what is meant by the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge isn't being able, about, about being able to discern right from wrong. They already knew that eating from this one tree was wrong. It's about being able to decide what is right and what is wrong. God said one thing was wrong, but they chose to do it anyway. And in doing so, they declared for themselves that it was right. They committed, in essence, treason against the Creator and the ruler of everything and therefore needed to be held to account for it. And that account is found in the fact that they suffer uh, pain and toil and are at odds with each other and will pass away. But even in this, we see mercy from God. We see hope in the face of tragedy because rather than giving them immediate punishment, immediate death, remember what he told them? If you eat from this, you will die. He instead clothes them. He sends them away and he gives them a promise. The first promise we see in the whole Bible of a Messiah, a rescuer, a saviour. A promise of an even greater justice to come, but a justice that comes not from their death to sin, or for their sin, but rather of restoration, of life to come from the destruction of their enemy. The promise isn't stated uh, towards them, but rather towards the serpent, the only character in this tragedy we haven't talked about yet. Uh, He's a significant part of our focus this morning. We could spend weeks on this whole chapter, but our interest primarily lies today in verse 15, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I'm not a a big fan of snakes. I don't think I'm on my own in feeling that way either. And I certainly, likely, probably would never get one as a pet. Not that there's anything wrong with that, Dave. 
But I tell you what, if snakes could talk, now that would pique my interest. Of course, snakes can't talk, let alone hold a conversation. Except for this one we meet in Genesis 3. At the very beginning of this chapter, we encounter the serpent, who is apparently crafty, craftier than any other creature in the garden. And he speaks to the woman. And what he speaks is nothing but lies. First, he tries to undermine what God says by lying about it. He says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And after Eve corrects him, he then tries to undermine God by contradicting his commands. He says, oh no, you will certainly not die. And then questioning God's very character by saying, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is, he's saying, God is hiding from you what is best for you. He doesn't want to share this good thing with you. And these are all lies, of course, because God is entirely good. His commands reflect his goodness, and he loves his creation. None more so than humans, those he made in his image. So, of course, he is going to want to share with us what is good for us. But you can see the cleverness of the lie. As I said before, God is the one who decides what is good and what is evil. So the serpent uses that truth to claim that if they just eat from the tree and decide for themselves what is good and what is evil, then they will be like God. But we aren't capable of being God because we are his creation. It is impossible for us to be God because we can never be the eternal creator. So knowing good and evil is only meant for God because he is all-knowing and all-good. Everything that he is, is good. So he is going to know what is good and what is not. Alas for us, they believe the serpent. And as the tragedy unfolds, we end up with this little sort of blame conga line. And the one left holding the bag, to mix my metaphors, is the serpent. He's the instigator of these events, seemingly out of nowhere. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and the serpent has no one else to blame. It seems as though these events are exactly what he wanted, what he desired, and so God curses him accordingly. There's nothing to say in his defence because there's no defence for the ruin he has brought about. So God curses the serpent, first literally in verse 14, but verse 15 doesn't really make much sense if we assume this is all about snakes. What does verse 15 say? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. Now, talking serpent is one thing, but a seemingly immortal, or at least very long-lived, talking serpent is quite another. 
What do I mean by that? Well, in all the curses, it's clear that you generally refers to the descendants, i.e. childbirth is painful for women, not just for Eve. But in verse 15, we get, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, that's multiple, but then he will crush your head and you, singular, will strike his heel. This isn't just some sort of pitched battle going on between generational armies. There also seems to be a specific event, mano y mano, one-on-one. An offspring of the woman will crush the serpent himself and the serpent will only be able to strike his heel. Hurt him, for sure, but not seriously enough to do lasting damage. How is this possible? How is this serpent in the garden going to be the one crushed by an offspring of Eve? It's possible because the serpent isn't just some talking animal. The serpent is actually Satan, the devil himself, the father of lies, as Jesus calls him. The one who led a rebellion against God himself in the spiritual realm and then followed up by bringing that rebellion into our world as well. Through his lie to Eve, which she and Adam chose to believe, he doomed us to death. Because death is the rightful punishment for sin. And as long as humans are sinning, that punishment will come, which means that in our death, if it were to continue forever... He would win his battle against God. And throughout the Bible we see Satan described as the prince of this world. The one who has dominion, who rules over the world because of sin. And we also see how he has offspring. In John 8 verse 44, Jesus says that those who reject God as their father instead have Satan as their father. That is, those who reject God's commands and his revelation and his truth, they're rejecting God as their father. And so instead, their father is the devil, the liar, the deceiver, because they're living a lie. Their father is the one whose power comes from sin, from rebellion against God. As John himself writes in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And this is not saying that there is, you know, there are good people who will be rewarded for being good, and then there are bad, sinful people, and they're just children of the devil. No, all people sin. Ever since our first ancestors, since Adam and Eve ate from that tree, all humans have had the desire to sin passed down to us. The question is simply, who will we choose to follow while acknowledging that we are sinners? Who will we have as our father, spiritually speaking? Will it be God, who is our father because he created us and knows what is good? Or will it be Satan, from whom nothing God comes, nothing good comes, and has only ever brought us pain, toil, suffering and death? None of which is what God desires for us and certainly isn't good for us. 
whichever side we choose, there will be eternal consequences. For here we see that God promises us that Satan will not win, that he cannot win, because an offspring of Eve, a human, will crush his head, will utterly destroy him. A human will wage battle against sin and death and come out victorious. Hurt in some way, but ultimately winning a glorious and permanent victory. This offspring will turn our tragedy into his triumph. As this promise that brings us to Jesus. Although Jesus' ancestry is traced back in Luke 3, for example, all the way back to Adam and Eve, and that uh, he is fully human, he fulfills uh, the first requirement. Uh, perhaps the most significant thing is that he's born from a virgin. He is the literal offspring of Eve in a way that no one else can claim to be. And what did Jesus do? Well, he lived a spotless life. He never sinned even once. And so it's clear that his father is God in every uh, meaningful way and that he is opposed entirely to Satan and his offspring. And because of that enmity between them, Jesus was condemned to die on a cross, to a death he didn't deserve, brought about by those who hated him, who were in full rebellion against God. And yet on that cross, because of his sinlessness, he was able to pay for our sins. He took our punishment, our rightful punishment for our rebellion against God, on himself. Now, crucifixion seems uh, like a bit more than having your heels struck, doesn't it? It's probably the single worst method of execution that has ever been invented. And if he had stayed dead, then it would have been far worse than a heel strike. If he had stayed dead, then Satan's victory would be complete, because even someone who was not guilty totally undeserving of death, would have been defeated by death. But there's more to it than that, because Jesus is also God. He is God the Son, the perfect Son of God the Father. So for Jesus to stay dead would mean that God himself had been defeated by sin and death. But thankfully for us, he didn't stay dead. His crucifixion was just a strike at his heel. Because on the third day after his crucifixion, he rose bodily from his grave and now lives forevermore in glory, seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And in this we see that the prophecy is fulfilled. The crucifixion was nothing more than a strike at his heel. It hurt his blood was shed, but his death, agonizing as it was, was still ultimately temporary. Satan's greatest weapon came up short. 
Paul puts it like this in Colossians 2. He says that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the, by the cross. And crucially for us, the resurrection also ensured the end of sin and death, the crushing of the head of the serpent. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, we, if we believe in Jesus, are no longer seen as guilty in God's eyes. The accusation made against us of our guilt no longer holds true. And when we see Satan explicitly at work in the Bible, he is accusing people of being guilty under God's law. But through Jesus, the guilt is taken away because Jesus takes the law on himself. We are free. And more than that, God adopts us as his children through his one and only son. He becomes our father in truth. The power over creation and the cosmic spiritual forces ultimately lie in the hands of God and God alone. And with our redemption secured by Jesus' blood, all that's left is for God to condemn Satan and his children for their rebellion, for not accepting him as father, which we're told in Revelation 20 will take place when Jesus returns and throws them into the lake of fire as their judgment for sin. A tragic end in some ways, because the choice to accept God and his truth is open to all, but a just end as well, because we can choose to follow the one who brings death instead of life, evil instead of good, lies instead of truth. When we think of Christmas, of the infant Jesus in the manger, maybe we don't think of him growing up to die an agonising death on a cross for our sake. Maybe we don't picture that baby boy crushing Satan and sin and death once and for all and casting judgment on the world according to whom each of us calls Father, God or Satan. But that is what he came to do. That's what God promised for us since the very beginning. Since the beginning, God has been at work. He could have chosen to immediately condemn Adam and Eve to death. It would have been just for him to do so. He could have ended uh, humanity in an instant because of their rebellion. But instead, he promised them salvation. He promised that he would provide a way out. That there would be a permanent victory over the forces of evil. And so, we have Jesus. John completes that verse, verse 8 from 1 John 3, as I mentioned before, by saying the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And while right now the battle hasn't finished, it has been won. Satan is raging against his impending doom. As we read in 1 Peter, the devil prowls like a lion, waiting to devour those who don't want to resist the inclination to rebel against God. It's very much like that idea of, well, if I can't win, I'm going to take you down with me. But we have the advantage. To use a sporting metaphor, we know who the winning side is. We know who kicked the winning goal. 
And in fact, it's not even a close match. It's an absolute thumping, resounding victory for Jesus and for his team, for everyone who follows him by calling God their father. Paul closes out his letter to the church in Rome by saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you get what he means? When Jesus returns to judge the world, those who have trusted in him will be co-heirs to all of creation with him. And so his crushing of the serpent, once and for all, which was promised in the Garden of Eden, which was achieved through his birth and death and resurrection, isn't just his victory, it's ours too. If we follow and believe that he will fulfill his first promise to us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning uh, recognising once more the tragedy of the garden, uh, the pain brought by that choice to disobey you, to reject you, and by every choice made since that day by humans to keep rebelling against you, Lord. But Lord, even as we recognise that, we thank you for the love and mercy and kindness you have shown us through this first promise you gave to us of Jesus, of uh, the one who would take our sin on his shoulders and who through his death and resurrection and return will rob Satan of his power and condemn him and all those who follow him to just judgment, but promises uh, eternal life in your love, in your new creation for all who believe in him. Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe in you Help us trust in you and to marvel uh, every day at how you have worked through sending your son Jesus into the world so that we might be saved through nothing more than believing in him. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.